This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. This is Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton, and today we're discussing the future of coal empowering the economy. After World War II, coal consumption in the United States climbed steadily for 50 years until 2005 when it started a steep decline. American coal is on the ropes for many reasons, but internationally, the BlackRock is gaining market share. That's good news for people climbing out of energy poverty in developing countries, but it's bad news for the climate. Coal is climate killer number one. Over the next hour, we will look at the future of coal empowering homes and businesses with cleaner energy. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have with us four experts. Richard Martin is author of the new book, Coal Wars, The Future of Energy and the Fate of the Planet. Bruce Nillis is Deputy of Conservation at the Sierra Club. And Frank Wolak is Director of the Program on Energy and Sustainable Development at Stanford. Brian Yu is Director and Senior Analyst at City Research. Please welcome them to Climate One. Richard Martin, you write about a couple of characters in your book, uh, Eddie and Danny Karst, father and son, one son, uh, the father who dreamed of being a coal industry person. Tell us about that family, what it says about some of the people who have been in the coal industry for generations. Yeah, so I met Danny Karst um, in Kingsport, Tennessee, which is in far eastern Tennessee, sort of at the toe of the Appalachians. And his father, Edward, who's no longer living, um, was one of the rare miners who was able to save enough money to actually buy his way into being a, a mine owner. And so they've been mining there um, on a tributary of the Cumberland River for close to 50 years, and Danny is watching his, the market for his coal dry up, and Danny is a man of principle and a man of faith, and, and I really, I spent a couple of days with him traveling through eastern Kentucky in the coal fields, and I have a lot of respect for him, um, and, and he's not ignorant or stupid about climate change at all, but it's his family's livelihood, and he has children, and, and he's wondering how they're going to continue to to make a living. And he considers himself fortunate that they've been able to continue to get royalties from these coal mines. Uh, But he's got miners on his payroll, and it's a shrinking industry in that region, and he is facing a very uncertain future. Bruce Nillis, the uh, Sierra Club has a big campaign. Some of it's been funded by Michael Bloomberg. Uh, what do you think about those people, people like that, that family, the Kars family, who recognize climate change, but their livelihood depends on it? What's the path for them, and, and what's, what's the Sierra Club have to say for them? Sure. So Sierra Club represents a couple million folks across the country, including people who live next to existing coal mining operations, uh, whose drinking water is being poisoned every day by coal mining they are folks who live in cities where it's unsafe to breathe many days of the year because of coal burning, producing huge amounts of soot and smog pollution. And 
So we really have a choice. We have 13,000 people a year dying prematurely from relying on an old, dirty, inefficient uh, fuel source. And today we don't have to make a choice between that and expensive electricity. Today the choice is between clean, affordable electricity like wind and solar, which is actually developing and providing more jobs today than in the coal mining sector. So our job ahead of us is overcoming the political um, barriers that the coal industry has put on our political process to make this transition as fast as possible so that um, we don't have to trade off providing electricity and people's health. Frank Wallach, do you agree that America should get off coal as fast as possible? Well, I certainly think that it makes sense to uh, price the uh, the bad that is produced associated with coal and is produced with the consumption of all fossil fuels. Uh, I mean, in the sense of greenhouse gases and pricing carbon, that, sh- that really should be job number one. Uh, it, rather than saying coal is terrible, uh, greenhouse gases are terrible, and greenhouse gases are produced by natural gas, they're produced by oil, they're produced by coal, uh, as well as, you know, the local pollutants and the like. So... I think that we want to focus on getting rid of the bad rather than getting rid of coal. Brian, you, what do investors look at this? They just look at the short terms. They only look at the financial gains. And how are coal stocks doing? Yeah, the way the investors are looking at it is essentially looking at the margins these companies are generating, how much they can get for the product. And I think the reality is in the U.S. market where gas and coal are competing for market share and gas prices under natural gas prices burn to make electricity under three dollars per MMBTU. It's very difficult for coal to compete. So essentially, we're seeing that um, those companies lose market share and it's having an impact on margins, the ability of these companies to service the debt. So many of the coal equities, you've seen the steady decline in their market valuation as a result. And what's been driving that? Has it been President Obama's war on coal? Has it been the EPA? Has it been, has it been the Sierra Club? Um, I think it's predominantly driven by the low price of natural gas. Um, the EPA and I think the administration is probably having some impact on coal-fired power plants shutting down. But the bulk of the impact is actually more economic-driven. Utilities deciding that it is cheaper and more economical to run their natural gas-fired power plants rather than coal. And does coal deliver prosperity? Does, does, is coal a good thing? To, I mean, cheap energy is good for consumers who are buying products made from uh, companies that have low cost of operations. It's tough for the U.S. to compete. Isn't cheap energy a good thing for American economy? Brian, you? I think cheap energy, to a certain extent, it is a good thing if people can't really afford something better. And that's why you're seeing in China... Um, so much of the power being generated by um, coal. But there is a a cost to it, which I think is part of this discussion, and that's the part where somehow we need to be able to price the carbon correctly um, so that we we don't essentially take away from the future uh, at the expense of some more modest benefit today. Frank Wolak, you're the economist here. Does coal deliver prosperity? Uh, I guess, I mean, I think it's uh, cheap energy certainly is uh, one of the ways that we lift people out of poverty. I I think a a great example of this is if you look at the periods 1870 to to 1915 in the United States, you see a rapid increase in the consumption of coal in the United States. And at the same time, you see a rapid increase in GDP in the United States. If you fast forward to 100 years later, you look at China you see exactly the same pattern, which is a rapid increase in coal consumption and a rapid increase in GDP uh, in China. It it does, uh, you know, 
deliver essentially rapid economic growth simply because of a very cheap source of energy. Um, there are a variety of you know, external costs associated with that, but, but that, that sort of uh, paradigm has been repeated you know, in countries around the world almost since the start of uh, you know, the modern society. Uh, Frank Wellick, is there a choice, though? Are renewables competitive with coal today? Uh, certainly, they're, they're, they're not cost competitive in the sense of uh, on a, what's called levelized cost basis. But again, what does that mean, levelized cost? Meaning you could, it's apples a, to a apples? simple way would be to say just the average cost of producing a kilowatt hour over the lifetime of the project. Uh, I mean, if you take uh, Powder River Basin coal, it's roughly $10 a ton, which translates into the heat content of roughly about you know, 60 cents per million BTU. Think of uh, natural gas is at the order of about $3 per million BTU. So you know, a, a coal-fired power plant in Wyoming is an extremely cheap source of, of electricity, but different parts of the country have different prices for coal because you have to get the coal to where you're, you're going to burn it, and the railroads uh, understand that and how they price. So there are differentials, but, but uh, fossil fuels, unfortunately, and it's made even worse by the fact of the shale gas revolution, they're just too cheap uh, at the moment. And, and, and if you do not include the cost of the uh, CO2 emissions. Bruce Nillis, do you agree that, that green is more expensive than brown? It, it's simply not played out by the facts on the ground, right? No one has built a coal plant or proposed to build a coal plant for the last six years because coal is too expensive. In the United States? In the United States. If it was so cheap, why are people not lining up to build new coal plants? And the answer is... Because they're building natural gas plants. The, <laughs> num- natural gas the, the number cheaper. one source of new generation in 2012, 13, and 14 was clean energy. It wasn't yeah. natural gas. So yeah. if you look at what's actually happening out on the ground today, people are realizing that investing in wind and solar is today, with a rapid decrease in price, um, a much cheaper option. And mm-hmm. we are in a proceeding in Oklahoma today at this very moment, with uh, industrial interveners arguing for more wind development in Oklahoma because it will lower electricity prices for factories in Oklahoma. In Oklahoma, home of Jim Inhofe, there is alignment because wind is cheaper than the alternatives, which include coal and gas. So if you actually look what's happening on the ground today, clean energy is beating out fossil fuels head-to-head across the country. Frank, well, well then, that- then I guess we can get rid of the production tax credit and the renewables portfolio standards that exist in all the, the states in the United States because it's so cheap. I mean, uh, again, I, I, I think it's I'm perfectly fine with I think we should, you know, we want to transition to a renewable future, but we, we need to be clear headed about, you know, the relative cost and what what are the cost drivers that, that that's all I'm saying. I think, you know, an RPS is great if people people like that, but it 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 is the reason that we do get these investments in renewables in you know, California and other states. It's the existence of these uh, state policies, which you know, I think many of the citizens support because they, are, they do exist. Richard Martin. So if you look at what's happening in Ohio, it's really interesting because up until last year, Ohio had one of the more progressive RPS, in other words, renewable portfolio standards, which requires utilities to include a certain amount of clean energy in their portfolio. Um, and it was repealed, essentially, by the legislature. Technically, it was put on hold, but, uh, and, and Governor John Kasich was, was kind of fo- forced into a corner to sign it. There was a coalition of manufacturers that included Honda, and, and you can probably name a couple of the others, Bruce, who were opposed to repealing the RPS because they see it as going backward and ultimately hurting the economy, the manufacturing economy in Ohio. So 
um, one of the Sierra Club representatives on the ground there said this is Ohio is ground zero for a lot of these conflicts. So it doesn't the the, the lines between you know traditional businesses supporting fossil fuels and the Sierra Club opposing them those lines are blurring very quickly. Brian, you is brown uh, cheaper than green still? I would say if, with respect to natural gas, um, all the numbers I've seen suggest that it is cheaper than green. Um, you, you look at the cost per gigawatt um, of building a natural gas plant, it's probably a billion dollars for the same amount of capacity for something that's more green, whether it's solar or wind. Um, I've seen numbers on the order of 2 to $3 billion, so it is more, more expensive. And I think the other big difference is that as we think about how we use power, thing with electricity is it's not storable. You need it on demand. So when it comes to wind and solar, that's more of a, you know, I term it as push. You know, it's there when the wind and, and sun are there, but you can't just flip a switch and generate electricity. So we probably, I think we need a balance of the two. Bruce Nellis, what about that? When the sun doesn't shine, when the wind's not blowing, those energies are not, you know, can't put them in a bottle. It's, it's exactly right. And so what utility after utility is doing across the country is working out, okay, how much wind can we get online? How much solar can we get online? If you think about Texas, in the northwest part of Texas, the wind blows in the evening, and on the southeast part of the state, it blows during the day. And you combine that with solar, you get coverage from most of the demand for, for electricity in Texas from wind and solar. Sure, we need backup, and that's what's exciting about all the new advances we're making in storage. Here in California, the legislature, uh, the Public Service Commission, just mandated that the state install a huge amount of new storage over the next seven years, precisely so that we can address uh, the issue that Brian's flagging. We know how to do this. This is not putting a person on the moon. This is about how do we integrate clean, affordable energy so that we can get rid of these um, fossil fuels that are producing huge amounts of pollution as well as fueling the climate crisis. Richard Martin mentioned earlier that the old lines of uh, uh, certain people being big business being for fossil fuels and environmentalists being for green fuels uh, have blurred. How about the Republican and Democratic line, Bruce Nillis? Is it uh, Republicans uh, all for fossil fuels, not so much for clean energy? There's a lot of coal state Democrats. Sure. Again, I think in the politics, we're seeing the lines blend a lot today in Michigan, run by a Republican governor. In the last couple months, he said, our state needs to get off of coal. If you think about Michigan, it has no coal reserves. It's kind of insane that, that today they're getting 50% of their electricity from coal. Well, Michigan well, is Illinois a, is next door. So. Michigan is a big manufacturing state, and right now they're not investing in manufacturing to produce lots of wind and solar because they've got this legacy of a coal fleet. And so what the governor, a Republican, is saying, let's invest in Michigan with manufacturing jobs to do wind and solar, and let's get this coal that is now taking millions and millions of dollars out of Michigan's economy, sending it to Wyoming coal barons. That makes no sense. So the Republicans who are saying... When you're honest about the economics and honest about the jobs, fossil fuels make less and less sense than they ever did. Rick Martin, did you want to say something? Well, two things. Um, going back to the question of storage, uh, you need to look at the cost curves for energy storage. There is a lot of money, a lot of smart people are working on lithium-ion and other advanced batteries and other energy storage technologies, and those costs are coming down very rapidly. So I think we're going to see a shift um, really, you know, within 10 years in terms of our ability to cost-effectively store um, the electricity that's coming from intermittent renewables. The other thing I'll just add to what Bruce just said is that there's a disconnect between the Republicans in Washington, D.C., who can stand on the floor of the U.S. Senate and rail against the war on coal and 
their party brethren who are in these communities who are mayors and economic development authorities and who have to look their neighbors in the eye every day, especially in Appalachia, and they know that coal is not the future. So if Mitch McConnell wanted to serve the people of Kentucky, he would be working on finding an economically viable future for these families that are dependent on an industry that is going away, and that's an irreversible trend. Well, Mitch McConnell called for civil disobedience in state capitals, quite an extraordinary call for a leader of the United States Senate. What happened to that? Did he run into that conflict, Richard Martin, between sort of the Republicans in the city hall and the state house uh, and the Republicans in in Capitol Hill? Well, what I found, Greg, is, is there's really sort of a divided mindset in a lot of these coal communities. I'll take as an example... Craig, Colorado, which is on the western slope. It's in the Yampa Valley of Colorado, only about 30 miles from Steamboat Springs. And the mayor of Craig is a 30-year veteran of the coal mines. And what he said to me is, we can either drive the car or we can be dragged along behind the bumper. And this shift is going to happen, and we don't want to be dragged. So he supported the building of a small solar garden that is literally in the smokestack of the big 20-mile coal plant right there in the middle of So I think you're seeing that shift on the ground. And at the same time, certainly the miners are angry. The miners are defensive and they see this livelihood that has supported them for generations uh, evaporating and they don't know what they're going to do. Richard Martin is the author of the new book, Coal Wars. Our other guest today, Climate One, are Bruce Nillis from the Sierra Club, Frank Wallach, director of the program on energy and sustainable development at Stanford, and Brian Yu from City. Uh, Brian, you would like to ask you, what's the future for coal companies? Do they have a path to move into another industry? I mean, Apple's going to make cars some soon. Like, what, what can coal companies do uh, if, if they get out of the coal business? The, for these companies and where all the dollars invested, I think it's going to be very difficult to make the, the transition. Their assets are essentially coal that's in the ground. Now, you have some companies where in Appalachia where they've got coal in the ground and there's what they call coal bed methane, and they can extract that for natural gas. Uh, but these companies' livelihood, it's, in essence, it's, it's coal. So if coal prices stay low and demand stays weak, they, they are going to be under pressure. So they're screwed. Uh, that would be another way of putting it. Okay. If nothing changes. <laughs> uh, are they well-run companies? Operationally, I think these coal companies are, are fairly well-run. Um, they've definitely gotten themselves into trouble over the last several years. And it's not so much because of the operations, it's because they went out and made sizable acquisitions um, during arguably the peak of the market, and so paid high prices, and those acquisitions are not giving them the returns that they need. Are they going to go bankrupt? Uh, if nothing changes, I think you'll see a number of companies run into financial problem over the next several years. Frank Wolak, could exports save the U.S. coal companies? They, they already are. I mean, and there's quite a few exports going out of East Coast ports. So there are exports going out of West Coast ports in the United States. There are our plans to build ports, perhaps not in the United States, the, 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 the three states that the ports would be built in would probably not be too hospitable to them. Uh, but, Thanks uh, to the Sierra Club, but yeah, we'll get to that, right? <laughs> but but, but uh, there's also the rail lines go to Canada, and Canada certainly uh, exports lots of uh, fossil fuels to, to Asia. There is a large uh, market. I mean, I think the one thing that's important to bear in mind about coal is that if you take the total incremental increase in demand for 
for essentially energy in millions of barrels of oil equivalent from you know, 2000 uh, to 2012, the total increase in, in demand for uh, energy from coal exceeds that increase in demand for oil, natural gas, renewables, you name it, everything. So, I mean, coal is, is growing like gangbusters globally. And it is true in the United States that it is uh, certainly having its trouble, largely because we're the only people in the world that have harvested the shale gas boom and have extremely low natural gas prices. Gas price, natural gas prices in Europe are significantly, you know, double to three times higher. In Asia, they're four to five times higher. So, you know, it, it, coal looks really good there, and that's what they're doing. And you think that it's better for China to burn American coal because it's cleaner. Is that right? Well, certainly it is much better than the stuff at the margin that, that they're going to be burning in China is, 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 you know, low sulfur, Powder River Basin coal is certainly going to have kill a lot less uh, kids in China than is going to be the very high sulfur, very high ash content coal that you might burn in, uh, that you extract uh, locally in China from the very small mines that, uh, uh, that Richard talks about in his book. You know, so, I mean, it, it's an unfortunate fact, uh, but, but uh, you know, we produce coal very efficiently, and, and the Western coal is, is, is quite clean in terms of its sulfur content. And, and the fact that you don't export the U.S. coal, they're going to get coal. I mean, coal is plentiful around the world. There's coal in Australia, South Africa, you know, Colombia, uh, Indonesia. It's, there's plenty of coal. Bruce Nillis? Better for China to smoke our stuff than their own stuff. Well, so, so here's the, the, the problem, which is um, we sit on top of 25% of all the coal in the world. We know that if we burn that, our planet is toast. So we have a simple responsibility. Do we allow that to get mined at enormous cost to us, ship through our communities with a lot of coal dust along the way, plaguing our communities, and then ship it overseas so that we have the situation today where coal being burned in China is polluting us here in California? Kids are having asthma attacks here in California because of U.S. coal exports. And something is seriously wrong and insane about that situation. So we have uh, fought a very vigorous effort to stop new coal exports because as coal use has shrunk here in the U.S., there have been plans to build six coal export facilities in the West Coast, Washington, Oregon, and California. Uh, we've stopped four of them. We're down to the last two, and we feel pretty comfortable that we will stop those last two from getting built so that we, in fact, won't be enabling the burning of uh, coal across the globe. And, in fact, what we're exporting is not a choice of X many deaths or slightly less deaths, as um, was described, but, in fact, we're exporting a cleaner and safer choice that doesn't either sacrifice our health or sacrifice the health of the Chinese. So we are vehemently against exports at a time when clean energy is cheaper today. So it makes absolutely no sense for us to be thinking about shipping coal overseas uh, and hurting ourselves, hurting the planet, and obviously contributing to air pollution in China as well. But do you acknowledge that if China doesn't get U.S. coal, they'll burn their own coal, and that dirtier stuff is going to come to Stanford and L.A. and San Francisco? I, I don't. One of the most historic things that happened in the last 12 months is the uh, leaders of both the U.S. and China stood together and said, we're going to work together to cut coal use. And that was because for the very first time in U.S. history, the U.S. is showing some leadership on climate change. We've shut down, we're in the process of shutting down 188 coal plants here in the United States, the largest cut in carbon of any industrialized country in the world, uh, major effort over the last five years. That has finally given the rest of the world some faith that we, the U.S., are serious about doing our part on reducing coal use and cutting carbon emissions. That was the underpinnings for the two leaders of China and the U.S. to sit together, stand together, and say, 
we're going to work together as the two largest emitters of global warming and finally do something about it. And so we're doing our part. China will do its part, which means China will be burning less coal going forward. And in fact, that's what's already happening. Beijing has just shut down its last coal plants because it said the health costs are just too great. And so U.S. leadership is critical, and we just don't buy the argument that the U.S. shouldn't be playing a leadership role both in doing the carbon reduction and also helping countries make the transition as fast as humanly possible. Frank Wallach. Oh, I I certainly think the U.S. should take a leadership role big time. I I think what the U.S. should do is price carbon. That is the leadership role. If you price carbon, you will certainly reduce greenhouse gas emissions. If you prevent coal exports, you'll do nothing to stop greenhouse gas emissions uh, globally. Uh, If we price carbon in the United States, we said, look, we're, we're willing to pay for the cost of the emissions and the carbon content of the energy we consume, that will be an enormous step. That is a leadership effort that I, that I would really hope that the environmental community would get behind and really support because that would really have meaningful uh, change in terms of the global greenhouse gas emissions because one of the things that happens if you price something and it's more expensive, people consume less of it, and, and that's, that's what's going to do it. I mean, simply jawboning and saying you can't export is not going to change the fact that all the coal is going to get consumed and there's many other countries in the world willing to sell China the coal. China has power plants that they built. They basically built the installed capacity of California every year for the past uh, 15 years. Those power plants aren't going to get shut down. They're going to burn coal in them. And, you know, that's the unfortunate reality. Waiting for price on carbon with this Congress is saying we're doing nothing. Oh, I, I, we, re- we I, fundamentally I, disagree, and that's why communities uh, are saying we're shutting down a coal plant and going to clean I, I, energy. I so, completely so sitting disagree. around and saying let's do some policy, which is not a reality, is it's it's saying we're not accepting that defeatism. Uh, yeah, no, I, I I completely disagree with that with your premise in the sense that I think that there is a growing bipartisan support for pricing carbon. It's just that everybody's got got to get behind and push it and. So that I, I, I think that there is a recognition that, that this, this is uh, what's necessary. And, you know, so let's focus on what's really going to solve the problem rather than, you know, vilify producers of a product that we all consume. We're, we're solving the problem. But Richard just, Martin. I just want to elaborate on something Bruce said, that it's already happening in China. And, in fact, China's coal consumption was flat last year after growing, you know, at a high percentage rate for decades it was actually flat, and there's a, a, a forecast that's often quoted that China's coal consumption is going to double by 2035. And actually, there's, I believe it was City that put out a report last year called Peak Coal in China, saying that actually the use of coal in China could peak by 2020 or so, and may already have. And so this export strategy that Peabody Energy and other large domestic coal producers are banking on is based on a fallacy, which is that coal consumption in China and and more generally in Asia has only one way to go, and that's up. There have already been huge coal mining projects abandoned or canceled in Australia, which is the largest uh, exporter of coal to China because they don't see the, the future demand. So that curve is already starting to flatten. Frank Wellick, China's economy grew last year. Greenhouse gases went down. That's a good thing. It's also happened in California. A little positive news. We're going to turn to our lightning round here, and we're going to ask each of you uh, a yes or no question. Uh, And I'm going to ask each of you this one. 
Stanford's divestment from coal stocks was a symbolic act lacking real substance. Frank Wallach, yes or no? Oh, yes, of course. I, I have a policy brief on my website that discusses that. I, I think a far more productive approach is for Stanford, again, to price carbon. I think Stanford can set the tone by essentially pricing the carbon content of all of its activities, and other major research universities can do the same. Interesting thing is uh, Yale University is actually implementing a carbon charge and moving forward on that, uh, as, and I've been participating in that process. So I think this is the way forward. I, that's why I'm not pessimistic about the ability to price carbon. We send a bunch of students out that understand how that works. They're going to change the world. And, and you know, that, 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 that's, that's the way it's going to happen. Uh, we'll try to get this. Okay, that's interesting. Thank you, Professor Wolak. The, um, we're going to try to get through this yes or no. Uh, Bruce Nillis, uh, Stanford's divestment from coal was a symbolic act lacking real substance. It was terrific. Everyone needs to do their part to solve the climate crisis, so getting your money out of uh, coal stocks. So that's, so that's a no. Yes. Richard Martin. Uh, yes, it was symbolic, but it's an important symbolic move. Brian, you? Yes, I think it was symbolic. Symbolic, but not financially meaningful? No. Okay. Uh, next question. The impact of President Obama's clean power plan on the coal industry has been exaggerated by the industry. Brian, you, yes or no? Yes. Richard Martin? No, I think they're right. It's the death knell. Bruce Nillis? It hasn't happened yet, but when it does, it will have a huge impact on the coal industry. Frank Wellack, the clean plan exaggerated or not? Uh, it, like I said, it's all being driven by the price of natural gas. So not exactly. Uh, Richard Martin, China could clean up its conventional air pollution and still fry the earth by moving coal plants to remote regions populated by ethnic minorities. Yes, and, and unfortunately that is happening. Bruce Nillis, the Sierra Club has no real answer for a 50-year-old coal miner who could be thrown out of work. We support Obama's plan to transition Appalachia. Brian, you, 2014 was a record year for financing coal projects by banks such as Citi, J.P. Morgan, and RBS. $66 billion by one count. Yes or no? Big money last year in coal? He's thinking about the lawyers back at the office. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to plead the fifth. No, um, I, I, there, were, there were a lot of coals that needed refinancing their debt. We yes. talked with your lawyers just to get him up on stage here. Um, Frank Wolak, uh, environmentalists raise the cost of energy. Yes or no? I don't know how to answer that. I, I don't know what... Sorry. Uh, I mean, certainly I think that's the, the goal. Uh, but, but whether or not... I, it's, it's unclear whether or not that's the case. I don't, I don't know. Do I haven't do? seen any studies to look at that. On environment. Okay. But, but you support a carbon tax, which by its definition is going to increase the price of... Electric. Yeah, of course. That, but that's okay. not environmentalist. So environmentalist that, that's, that's a, we're that's, in agreement. That's a, that's a good policy. Uh, that's not environmentalist. That's making evident the costs that are already there that we yeah. just don't price into. Yeah, it right I mean, now. so I, I think it, if you say that there are environmental costs associated with fossil fuel, I completely agree. And so that's, that's why a, I want to price them. That's a social cost of carbon. So, Brian, you, is there a social cost of carbon recognized on Wall Street? No, I don't think there currently is. Like, they know it's, it's out there, but we don't pay it, so we don't care. Well, part of it is you, it, it's difficult to quantify. I think you've got a lot of countries that have tried. Australia tried it with a carbon tax a couple years back. It got repealed. Europe, the EU tried it. They had a carbon tax in place. Um, but I think that the cost of a ton of carbon these days is less than $5 a ton. So it's been attempted. The, the tough part is we really don't know what the social cost is. So essentially, it's a stab in the dark. 
We, we have a, we, I should just emphasize, we have a cap and trade market in the United States that, that they had in California that I've actually devoted a lot of effort to. The current price of carbon in California is about $12 a ton, and its uh, market's working quite well. And I think that California should try to spread it to the rest of the United States and, the, uh, and to, to the, certainly to the world. Uh, one of the big disappointments to me is the fact that the politicians in Sacramento aren't out there publicizing the fact that, look, there is a price on carbon in California. The economy's booming. You can do it too, the rest of the world. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really, it's a travesty that, 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 that they're not doing that. I mean, if anything, they're keeping quiet about it, which is something that they shouldn't be doing. British Columbia also put a, a price on carbon pollution. They have a tax. Frank Willock, did they do a good job there? Well, I think there's a case, in their case, I think it's a case of it's just a gas tax. And, and most people don't not like a gas tax. I mean, British Columbia gets virtually all its electricity from zero carbon sources. So Hydro, it's not like it's really costing them anything. I'd say if you want to say virtuous, we're more virtuous because we get most of our electricity from fossil fuels and we're willing to pay at least a $12 per ton cost for that. So, you know, I think that's, that's great, and I think we should publicize it. Take that, Canada. Okay. Yeah, exactly. we're, uh, we're talking about coal and other forms of energy at Climate One. Our guests are Brian Yu, Director and Senior Analyst at City Research, Frank Woolock from Stanford, Bruce Nillis from the Sierra Club, and Richard Martin, author of the new book, Coal Wars. I'm Greg Dalton, and we'll be right back. And now, here's a Climate One Minute. Maria Gano is from a four-generation coal mining family in West Virginia. But when she saw how industrialized mining was destroying her land, water, and community, she became an advocate for shutting it down. When Gano came to Climate One in 2014, she told us that times are changing for the coal industry and that miners need to be prepared. If you are successful, mines will be shut down and men will lose their jobs. Including my son. And uh, as a mother, I can't wait. <laughs> and, and I love my son very much. And, and uh, I also, he, he is a hard worker and he's never missed a day's work. He's a, he's a good employee. I also have two brothers that works in the coal mines. Um, and he has learned the hard way that it's very necessary to be able to stand on your own and not depend on these companies for your life. Uh, because you can't. I mean, it, it's not only environmental uh, laws or regulation that shuts these companies down. When, they, when their bottom line drops, these men get laid off, period. In 1960, for instance, we had 125,000 coal miners in the state of West Virginia. Now we have less than 12,000 coal miners. And that's because of mechanization. That's not because of regulation. That was Maria Gano in 2014. Her fight to stop mountaintop removal in Appalachia earned her death threats and a Goldman Environmental Prize. Now back to Greg Dalton and his guests at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, we're back at Climate One talking about coal and energy. I'd like to ask Richard Martin about this uh, place in China that you write about called Datong. It is kind of like the end of the earth. I went there 20 years ago. It is dark. It is gray. It's hard to describe how how uh, dismal this place is. You went to a particular mine there, and you talked to a person who's in charge of uh, coal there. So tell us a story about you kind of finagled your, maybe, yeah, wiggled your way into this this uh, coal mine there in China. So set the scene for us there. Yeah, so Datong actually doesn't fit that description anymore, Greg. It's a thriving city of close to 5 million people, but it's a monoculture. It's all based on coal. And... Um, 
So yes, we went to a small mine um, near Datong, outside the city limits, and just kind of walked up. And it's it's an interesting dynamic in China. If you try to take a picture of a lone protester in Tiananmen Square, you're going to have police on you rather quickly. But out in the provinces where we were, where Western journalists seldom venture, people are actually quite open, and there was very little uh, resistance, as it were. And so we walked up, talked to him a bit. The manager of the mine, the quality manager of the mine, invited us into his office. We talked to him for about an hour. And um, he is planning his future and his family's future as well because he uh, makes small loans on the side to his colleagues and, and other townspeople. So he's kind of a financial operator in that sense. And it was interesting, sitting in his office, I was looking through the window, and it's actually next to a, a PLA, a People's Liberation Army base, and there were big wind towers on the hillside literally overlooking this small, very dirty mine. And so what China is doing, and, and this is a very mixed blessing, is shutting down those illicit, unlicensed mines that for years and years have been operated in the provinces. What that means, unfortunately, is they're concentrating um, the coal mining in these huge operations, and they're, um, as you alluded to earlier, they're building big power plants and cement plants and other industrial facilities that rely on coal right essentially at the mine mouth, and they're, they're undertaking the largest electricity transmission project in the history of the world to basically ship that electricity to the coast. So as Bruce said, they're shutting down the coal plants in Beijing and Shanghai, but essentially they're moving it to the interior, which is not going to help the, the climate. And what plan does China have for workers? Uh, there's a lot of concern. They want political stability in China. Uh, co-workers that are displaced, are they taken care of? No. I mean, I talked to a couple of retired miners at that same site, and they're taken care of. They've got their pensions, their um, health care is taken care of, et cetera. I mean, after all, it is still nominally a communist country. But what I was told was that their kids who are still working in the mines haven't been paid in months. And so what's happening in China is there's been this implicit bargain for decades, you know, during this economic miracle. We will give you 10% economic growth a year. We'll bring millions of people into the middle class, which is an astonishing achievement. In return, you will give us political acquiescence and acceptance of severe environmental damage. And that bargain is breaking down. And I think the leaders in Beijing are fearful that they're going to have a revolution on their hands if they really uh, try to shut down the coal industry quickly. So that's a bit of an insoluble problem. If they don't shut down the coal, they got middle-class property owners and people who want to breathe, and there's now environmental refugees from China. But if they do shut it down, they got social instability. Right. Uh, uh, Brian, you, let's ask you about the prospect of clean coal. Can coal be cleaned up with some kind of new technology uh, you know, basically filters on the top of smokestacks or other technologies. We hear a lot of uh, advertisements used to be about clean coal. Yeah, that... That you've got different types of technologies out there already, and there's you know, what, what they call scrubbers. It takes out a lot of the, the um, you know, socks and knocks off uh, silver dioxide and, and nitrous oxide. Uh, but the one part that we really haven't been able to see uh, people remove is carbon, and there's been talk about what they call CCS, carbon capture sequestration, but it is extremely expensive um, given where the technology is today. So in essence, you know, we've been able to get rid of a few of the pollutants, but 
not carbon. Frank Wellick, clean coal, is that kind of an oxymoron or is that something that could be really happen? Well, certainly, I think, as it was alluded to, there's carbon capture and sequestration. And, you know, I think, I mean, personally, I think one thing that would be a very interesting prospect is to say, look, what we want is a zero carbon portfolio standard. Solar provides it. Wind provides it. Carbon capture and sequestration that sequesters the CO2 associated with coal, that could provide it, too. I mean, and let's let's see. Uh, Largely because... I mean, the, the simplest way I think about it is, is that China's coal consumption is four times, at least four times the United States. They've built all these power plants. If we want them to essentially reduce greenhouse gas emissions, we've got to come up with the technology that's going to allow them to burn coal. Because, uh, I mean, if, if, if we could reduce our greenhouse gases to very little, uh, we still don't solve the problem. So the big thing is we need to develop the technology that we can then hopefully export to China to help them to effectively burn the coal that we know that they're going to burn uh, to, to essentially mitigate the climate implications of it. And so getting out there and developing this technology, I think, is, is something that really is unfortunate but essential to really addressing the problem. Bruce Nillis, clean coal worth pursuing? So we spent many years at Sierra Club trying to work out, is there a path forward for coal? And, and when you look and you're honest about the impacts coal has on the mining, the burning, and the disposal of coal ash and the pollutant, there's no step in that life cycle where there is the local communities being protected and not enormous environmental cost. Here in California, we love our mountains. Imagine if someone said to us, you know, the price of prosperity is we're going to blow up 500 of the mountains in California in the next 10 years and pollute 10,000 miles of rivers. Do you think that would ever happen in California? <laughs> would it ever happen anywhere but Appalachia? And that's what we've done in the last 10 years in pursuit of this, uh, quote, prosperity of continuing our reliance on coal. So when we think about clean coal, it is truly an oxymoron because someone, as long as we are using coal, someone is getting screwed somewhere. That's the hard and fast reality. And the workers, you mentioned the workers, the coal mining industry has done a terrific job of busting all the unions. And so as the coal industry is shrinking in the United States, these workers are being laid off with no pensions and no rights and a lot of health care costs. We as a country owe it, just as we did to the Pacific loggers, the loggers in the Pacific Northwest, tobacco farmers in in the South, we need, as a country, to come together and help Appalachia and the workers make this transition with health care and pensions and say, coal may have served us well over the last 100 years, but it is time, it is long due and over time to move on as fast as we possibly can because there is no such thing uh, as clean coal. Richard Martin, you write about uh, President Obama's all-of-the-above strategy, and you have an interesting sort of personal health care analogy for that. What's, what, if, uh, what's the personal health care analogy or dietary analogy for all-of-the-above? Yeah, so um, anyone who has an all-of-the-above uh, energy strategy, that's the translation of that is I am in the pockets of the fossil fuel industry. So that's my personal view. But what I said in the book was that an all-of-the-above strategy is like a, a – alcoholic who smokes three packs a day saying, I'm also going to drink some vegetable smoothies, but I'm not going to quit smoking or drinking. So it doesn't really accomplish the the task that is before us. And I just want to add one thing on clean coal technology. I talked about storage earlier, and there's really exciting technological developments on the horizon in energy storage. That is not the case in cleaning up coal. It is a brute force technology. You have to force the smoke through a membrane, and there is no technology on the horizon that are going to bring those costs down. So that is a way for the coal industry to pay 
you know, millions of dollars a year to say, yes, we're going to clean up coal while they keep burning it in the meantime. Frank Wellick, do American taxpayers get uh, a just price from coal extracted from public lands? I don't know what a just price is, but uh, uh, they, it, 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 uh, Thomas, Sir Thomas More knew, knew but uh, I'm an economist. I, I know what a market price is. But uh, it, it, it's up to the political process, I think, to decide what it is that they're going to charge for uh, extraction on, on government lands. And I think that's, that's up to the, the political process to, to determine. Uh, there are, you know, for, for example, in all of the states that have uh, mineral resources, there are severance taxes that are charged to the resource extractor to pull the resource out of the ground. Uh, they're in places Except like for oil in California, but that's a separate story. Yeah, yeah. Right? no, that, that's um, true. Cal- California is one of the peculiar states in the sense that, that that's another one that's kind of a puzzle for California. But, but you know, Wyoming and Montana both have fairly substantial severance taxes on uh, coal extraction within their boundaries. But I guess I would just take issue with the point about CCS. I mean, uh, knowing at Stanford and at uh, the MIT and at other places, there's lots of research that is going on. And uh, is there are lots of research on battery technology. So, I mean, I'm, I'm a technological optimist. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, and the, there are a lot of smart people working on it. So uh, if, if, they, if they thought it was a dead end, I think they'd stop working on it. But uh, so I, I think that, you know, that we'll see. But, I mean, to me, it's if, if you're at all serious about the climate, it's got to be there because the, the Chinese are consuming coal at a you know, rapid rate. The business models of a lot of fossil fuel companies are banking on that. Without that, Brian, you there in, in real trouble. Uh, but I want to ask you about churches and universities around the country are debating the morality of fossil fuels. Some are divesting. Uh, is that having any impact on coal or other stocks, Brian, you? No, I don't really see having I mean, much of an impact, you know, largely because if you look at the publicly traded companies um, out there, especially in the U.S., there's such a small portion of the overall market that you know, it's, I think it's, it would be a good illustration of what their – it sends a message, but it really doesn't have an impact on, on the stocks themselves and how they trade in the marketplace. Could it if more institutions divested, or is it just makes cheaper for some of your clients to buy? Um, I, I think there's very little institutional ownership at this point in time that it's, it, it's an easy call to make. Who's buying um, these coal stocks? There's a lot of trading activity, but I think um, a lot of big institutions have already divested the interest. And I'm not even talking about church. And, you know, these are your pension fund investors. Smart money's out Smart of coal. Smart money, they're essentially out of coal, not necessarily for environmental reasons. It's just economic reasons. You know, when you have low oil prices, low natural gas prices, um, you, know, you look at the price of coal, whether it's in Europe or in China, they've dropped dramatically that the U.S. companies, it, it makes it very uneconomic for them to even try to export any material at this point in time. It just doesn't make any sense. We're talking about coal and energy at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We have Brian Yu from City Research, Frank Wolak from Stanford, Bruce Nillis from the Sierra Club, and Richard Martin, author of Coal Wars. I just wanted to comment on something that Brian said. I mean, if you look in 2008 when the price of oil was $140 a barrel, you know, Central Appalachian coal was selling for on the order of $140 a ton. Right now, where the price of oil is, you know, in the range of probably $50 a barrel, it's selling for $45 a ton. So it, it, it's just, it's the substitute for oil. And, and when oil is expensive, you get more substitute to coal. That's our FRN's question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, uh, my name is Rick Mishlevsky. My Both my grandparents, and both grandfathers and most of my uncles were working class coal miners. 
Today, I looked at Arch Coal and uh, Peabody, uh, their stock performance over the last, since 2011, and I saw just toiletizing, shall we say. What I'm concerned about is the people who are working in the coal mines, or now are not working in the coal mines. There has been some noise about uh, a carbon fee and rebate program, where the rebate would be spread to the population. Wouldn't it make more sense to spread that, take that rebate and give it to the workers who are being displaced? Frank Wallach, big fights in California about where the money goes from pricing carbon. Everybody in the legislature has an idea. What about the workers? I I certainly very much uh, think, I mean, personally as a voter, I think that's a great idea. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, I mean, it it makes a lot of sense. Uh, The unfortunate thing is, uh, who knows how the political process will work, but if offered as a ballot proposition in California, I would vote for it. Governor Jay Inslee in Washington, his idea is to give it to education, something else. Every politician has a different idea. Uh, Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. My name is Anna Foreman. Um, I was just wondering if I could hear from you guys how you think we could realistically implement a triple bottom line in a capitalist society. Explain what triple bottom line, Brian, you. People, planet, profit. Is that what you have in mind? Yes. Different kind of capitalism, Brian, you. Um, boy, I don't know how to answer that. I mean, I would generally agree with, you know, Frank, if you're trying to improve the situation, um, basically you know, put, a, put a cost on you know, coal emissions, essentially a you know, cap-and-trade type of system, and re- re- try to redistribute those dollars um, that come in, in in ways that essentially you know, benefits the, the people that are displaced by, um, by the regulation. One of the big drivers is compounded quarterly profits. We all like that for our retirement plans. That drives the short-term behavior. It means that we don't, companies, executives are not incentivized to consider long-term things that don't hit their balance sheet, things that might happen after they, they, uh, they leave office. So realigning the investment horizon and the incentives might be one way. Yeah, I think it, it comes down to the way I look at it, and me being a numbers guy, I think you know, the, the numbers make the world you know, turn around. When you look at why China's burning coal, it's because coal is cheaper. Why are we burning more natural gas here? It's because gas is cheaper. So the, the way to make people move in a certain direction is you've got to put a price on certain things. And then, you know, I'm, again, I agree with Frank that we need to put something in there. You know, maybe that's a carbon cap, some sort of a cost on carbon, but I think the biggest issue is how do you do that, not only on a state level, but on a national level, on a global level, so that it's equal playing field. Um, some of the companies that I follow who are metals producers, what they'll say is, fine, you put a carbon tax in the U.S., it makes us uncompetitive. We're not going to make as much steel, not as much aluminum. China's going to get the business. So does that make it any better if we move our manufacturing offshore? where they're doing even less to try to improve the... And it's a simple fact that sometimes our markets don't work and we have to ban something, right? The reason we don't have lead in gasoline is not because we put a price on lead in your gasoline and said it's okay to kill X number of kids. We said, no, the health evidence is uncontroversial. We need to ban the use of lead in gasoline. If you think about the history of coal, it was 700 years ago that the first king of England said, we need to limit coal burning in London because it's creating problems 700 years ago. It took until 1956 for the health studies to catch up with what everybody knew. When you're breathing that junk, it's really bad for your health. And in 1956, London banned the use of coal in the urban area. It wasn't a market-based because the market wasn't working. We knew that the problem associated with coal burning in London was causing huge amounts of health impacts. It was time to phase it out. And so 
there's certain things that we just need to not wait for the market because the market is sort of just a, a one mechanism to get there. When we have a problem like climate change, let's get on a path of phasing out fossil fuels, and we know how to do it. Clean energy is scaling up at rapid levels today here in California and around the country. And so this notion of trying to come up with some fancy policy around the market, let's just agree that fossil fuels are having profound impacts. We don't need them. They're cheaper alternatives. And let's get on a reasonable glide path over the next 10, 15 years to phase them all out. We're talking about coal and energy at Climate One. You can follow us and uh, join the conversation using our Twitter handle, at Climate One. Let's have our next question. I'm wondering if the panelists could comment on Harvard professor Lawrence Tribe's recent activities on behalf of Peabody and also think maybe more broadly on the end game for these politically powerful companies and sort of how that can be managed best for everyone. Who wants to take the constitutionality? Richard Martin. Well, I'm not going to comment on the constitutional issues on which Professor Tribe is much more of an expert than I am. But what he said was... Yes, I am getting paid to do this by Peabody Energy, but I'm independent. And he may well be, but let me assure you that by taking money from a coal company to study this question automatically disqualifies him from any legitimacy on the issue. So it, it, it was sort of distressing because I have great respect for the guy's work, but he's, he's just disqualified himself as far as I'm concerned. Does the same apply to university research that gets energy company funding? Um, I, I personally don't, don't think so, largely because, I mean, you, you, you're subject to peer review in a university, thank goodness. I wish that there were more peer review in other parts of the economy. I mean, if what you want to do is actually take your research and publish it, you actually, and your claims, and, and actually promulgate those, you, you actually have to get them reviewed by peers who perhaps may not have the same perspective as you, and who will say, look, you know, the, you, are, you are grinding an axe for, say, the funder or whatever, that, that's, uh, we're not going to uh, publish your paper unless you basically address this issue, do this additional analysis to buttress what claims you're making. So, I, I think that, uh, I mean, I, I guess there I think that you're giving up on a very valuable sort of source of funds, information, you know, knowledge, uh, by not working with the industry uh, as an academic. And, you know, the other thing is, is if in the most cases, the academics aren't, aren't getting paid enough probably for it to matter, but maybe it does. But I still think that the peer review process is a very effective discipline on a lot of the stuff you might be worried about. Let's go to our next question, Climate One. Uh, hi there. This is probably a better question for Bruce or Richard, but I was wondering uh, if you could comment on how important it is to overturn the decision on Citizen United um, in terms of uh, being able to move climate, climate change and uh, uh, resources forward. Brian, I guarantee you no lawyer at City is listening. <laughs> I'm not even sure how to go about answering that. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Barton. Well, that's a question that applies in many fields beyond climate change. But I will say, uh, here's a piece of full disclosure. The company I work for, Navigant Research, has done work for an organization called Advanced Energy Economy, which is largely funded by Tom Steyer, who, of course, is the billionaire hedge fund manager who has made it his life's mission to uh, limit global climate change. And so in that sense, he's kind of becoming a, a you know, he's often been called one of the Koch brothers of, of the left. 
And so um, I think it's what we're seeing is it's not just the 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 right that is taking advantage of you know the sort of unlimit the the lack of limits on in on money and in political campaigns and and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing you know I'm not going to get into but um, it it is happening and I think fortunately there's money on the other side as well is all I would say. Tom Steyer made some of that money in coal and oil sands and other things. Uh, we want to wrap up here at Climate One asking each of you, what's the next thing you, you're going to do, Frank Willock, to reduce your personal carbon footprint? Uh, well, the thing that I, I'm doing is uh, I, there's actually a, a website. It is called universitiespricecarbon.org. I'm trying to encourage all universities to uh, join in pricing carbon through the, the effect of teaching the future generation of students that, yes, it can be done, uh, and it can be done at your university. They go out. They actually uh, uh, implement that at their universities. They go out into the world, and this will be much less of a challenge so that we can actually make meaningful progress to, to address the climate challenge. Great. So tuition will go up even more. Okay. Bruce Nellis. Uh So I was just uh, able to buy a home and uh, looking to buy put solar on the roof as the quickest, easiest, and cheapest way to do a lot in my own personal home. So I'm very excited about going solar very shortly. Richard Martin? So I live in Boulder, Colorado, and Boulder, as some of you may have heard, there was a referendum last year to municipalize, which means we're going to run our own utility and and break off from the wider power grid, which is run by Excel. And there's a long section in the book about that, and I think it's a, it's a questionable move, but it is a way of sort of breaking the, the monopoly structure of um, the utilities in many parts of the country, and it's a, it's a growing trend. You're seeing uh, municipalization happening um, in many communities around the country. Brian, you? Um, I think for, for me, it's probably fairly simple in terms of you know, trying to just use less electricity around the house, switching out those bulbs for LED, and just um, you know, reduce my own personal consumption of electricity. I want to thank our guest today at Climate One. We've been hearing from Richard Martin, author of Coal Wars, The Future of Energy and the Fate of the Planet, Bruce Nillis, Deputy Converse, Conservation Director of the Sierra Club, Frank Wolak, Director of the Program on Energy and Sustainable Development at Stanford, and Brian Yu, Director and Senior Analyst at City Research. I'm Greg Dalton. You can join the conversation on Twitter using our handle at Climate One and find a podcast of this and other programs at our website, climateone.org. Thanks to our audience here in the room and also online and on air. Thank you all. Thanks for coming. Thanks very much. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer, and Alyssa Kerr is our assistant producer. The audio engineer is John Rieger, with help from Will Llewellyn. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.